now, would you turn with me to um, text? And just get back on that. First Thessalonians chapter four. And be reading verses <clears throat> thirteen to eighteen. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore encourage one another With these words. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray again that your Spirit might speak these living words to us, that even as your Apostle spoke to the Thessalonians, we would know that the same Spirit who spoke through him is speaking to us. And we pray that we might be greatly encouraged. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The rapture. Whether and when. The vast majority of what we would recognize as evangelical Christianity holds to a view of the second coming of Christ, which actually never existed before the late 19th century. And it was not popularly believed until the early 20th century. This view, consistent with an overall construction called dispensationalism, was taught by John Nelson Darby and C.I. Schofield, and it teaches that Christ, among the many other things they teach, they teach, especially from this passage, that Christ will return twice. The first time in secret, when he will come to raise the believing dead and take up those still alive at the time with him to heaven. This rapture will take place before the Great Tribulation, a period of seven years, which according to their view is described in Revelation chapters 6 through 19. Therefore, Christians will be spared from enduring the Great Tribulation. Christ will return again publicly after the Tribulation to conquer the beast and Satan and to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem, where he will rule in the midst of a redeemed Israel for 1,000 years. 
During the time that Christ rules on earth over his millennial kingdom, the church, which was taken up in the rapture, will remain in heaven. This teaching on the rapture is based primarily upon this passage in 1 Thessalonians. The end of 1 Corinthians 15 is understood to be talking about the same event. Now, given the fact that many Bible-believing Christians have been exposed to this view, I know I was as I was growing up, um, the... I think it's good for us because not only is that the case, given the fact that many in Reformed churches have not been exposed to that view, I thought it would be helpful to focus on this passage and to seek to understand it in the context of the scriptural teaching on Christ's second coming and on the last day. We hope to cover some basic questions implied in the title, whether there is a rapture, and if so, when does it take place? And so we must also ask, who is included in the rapture? Now this is something I have to admit, although I've been familiar with this view, it's a, and I'll tell you right at the outset, uh, the view that I just described to you is one I do not share and is not ordinarily uh, shared in Reformed churches. Um, <clears throat> however, uh, I was to discover some things about it uh, and some of the things especially that are going on today in preparing for this message that uh, somewhat surprised me. Um, there, are, there are true brothers and sisters in Christ who really love the Lord and just want to see him return as soon as possible. And in that way, they're very much like us. I think we're heart to heart on that. We want the Lord to come back as soon as possible. He possibly can. And so that um, we, we share that, that love of the Lord and that desire to, as the scripture says, long for his appearing. Uh, but they're stretched out all along the spectrum. There actually are, there are people that are very concerned about what is going to happen to their pets if they're raptured. What's, what's going to happen to Fido? You know, what's he going to eat? Who's going to let him in, let him out? And so there are, believe, I mean, I read it on the internet, so I know it's true. Uh, there, are, there are services that people offer that we will take care of your pet if you're raptured. Now, I don't know what, you know, I, I guess these people know something about themselves that uh, <laughs> may not want to share, that uh, they're, they're going to miss the rapture, but uh, that's okay. They'll take care of your pet for you. So it's, it's amazing uh, the kind of speculation uh, that goes into this. Uh, many of the people who hold this view are much more careful uh, and try to stick as close to the Bible without uh, too much speculation as they can. But let's take a look and see if we find here uh, a teaching of what, you know, whatever a rapture is and, um, <clears throat> and see when it is going to take place. Because the matter of when is very important in the dispensational scheme. So first, let's look at the rapture and the church. Because according to the dispensationalists, the rapture is for the church and for the church alone. Now we'll, we would agree thus far, but we'll see where we depart. 
Let's start with whether there will be a rapture. The word translated in verse 17 by the phrase caught up is translated in Jerome's Latin Vulgate, in, which of course in Latin, as rapiamur, which is a form of the Latin word rapturo, meaning to snatch up or to catch up. So, yes, this passage teaches a rapture. If that is what the word means, then that indeed is what is described here, where those who are still alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air at his return. So, next question is who will be caught up? The letter is addressed to the church in Thessalonica, and verse 16 specifies that the dead in Christ will rise first. Obviously, Paul is speaking universally, so this means the whole church, all of those who are in Christ, who have died in Christ, will rise at this return of Christ. They will all be resurrected. There's no disagreement with those who have a special view of the rapture thus far. But there's a problem. In the view that prevails, especially in American churches, this return of Christ is separate from the final public return of Christ when every eye will see him, when he returns as conquering king and judge. Many refer to this view as a secret rapture. When the church is taken up to heaven to escape the tribulation to come, they will uh, look at the very next chapter and they will point out that it says in, ver- uh, in chapter 5 that God did not appoint you to suffer wrath. He says to the Thessalonians, he did not appoint you to suffer wrath, but to inherit salvation. And so they take this as making the point that the church will be raptured and they will escape the tribulation. They will not suffer wrath. That's how they define uh, wrath in the context. They think it's talking about the wrath that God will visit upon the earth during this great tribulation. So, the... uh, this view fits into the larger assumption, which is basic to the dispensational view of Scripture, and that is that there are two separate programs in the plan of God for the nation of Israel and for the church. Two different things. According to their view, the promises made to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament will be literally fulfilled in a restoration of national Israel with Jesus as their king. This kingdom will be set up and all of the promises fulfilled in the thousand-year reign spoken of in Revelation 20. Already some confusion is introduced, of course, because so many of the early Christians were converted Jews. Would they be raptured with the church? or remain to be a part of the millennium on earth? I don't know. They were given a choice. But already we begin to see that this, the idea that this is for Christians alone and not for the Jewish nation, nation uh, the understanding that the return, the public return of Christ after this um, great tribulation 
is to set up the kingdom, which will be a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the restoration of Israel. And it really requires that there be two separate returns of Christ. Now, let's then focus in on this. The rapture and Christ's return. Are they two separate events or are they the same? Do they happen at the same time? Let's come back to that question of the division between Israel and the church after we settle a more immediate question, when does the rapture take place? More specifically, since no one knows the day or the hour, is it a separate event from the final second coming or is it in fact the second coming? Is that what 1 Thessalonians 4 is describing? Is just another aspect of the second coming. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. We see there, we read that passage just a little bit earlier. Let me see, I think I've got it at my fingertips here, yes. Um, <clears throat> where he tells a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And there is the same um, combination there of those who have died and those who are still remain. We shall not all sleep, we shall not all be dead, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And it says, at the last trumpet. This passage, which the uh, people who believe there was a secret rapture and it's separate, from the second coming, they, uh, they will tell us that 1 Corinthians 15, 15 to 58 is talking, 51 to 58, is talking about the same thing. It's also about the secret rapture. And it says that, um, but we're told in the text, this happens at the last trumpet. The last trumpet. Now, In, in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 11, it says, The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your saints, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This prophecy is fulfilled when the seventh, the last trumpet is blown. The last trumpet is when the <clears throat> time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your saints. The last trumpet is very clearly associated with the end, the last day, the judgment, when the Lord Jesus returns. Um, just from the text itself, the description there, notice a number of features about uh, looking back at 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. The last trumpet, it appears in 1 Thessalonians 4. It appears uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, and it appears here uh, in the book of Revelation. 
In Revelation, no one argues that that is clearly speaking of the end and of the return of Christ. But the last trumpet is mentioned here in 1 Thessalonians 4 and everywhere else it's associated with the second coming of Christ. Uh, it's not a separate secret rapture. Um, and of course, uh, hardly secret when he comes with a cry of command and with a voice of an archangel. The, and so we, we read in, in 11.15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. The last trumpet signals the end, the return of Christ to set up his eternal kingdom. So then there is the term indicating the coming of Christ. There is a word that every time it is used of Christ, it always refers to his second coming. The same term is used in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in 2 Thessalonians 2. The dispensationalists would say that 1 Thessalonians describes the secret rapture and 2 Thessalonians describes the public second coming. They acknowledge 2 Thessalonians is indeed when he comes and destroys the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, that is his public second coming. And that, of course, according to them, happens seven years later. But Paul calls both events the parousia. We find the word parousia describing 1 Thessalonians 4, and parousia appears in 2 Thessalonians 2. There is only one parousia, not two. <clears throat> it says, uh, just to point out the verse, um, for this we declare, verse 15, to you by a word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming, the parousia of the Lord. And then, of course, over in 2 Thessalonians 2, um, the, in verse 8, and when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So, we're talking about the same event, the parousia, the return of Christ. Next question, though, is who will be caught up? The letter, is, I'm sorry, I'm good. I've gotten behind. You've heard of people who've gotten ahead of themselves? Well, I got behind myself. And that is really, really uncomfortable. Um, the <clears throat> let's um, so we come back to that that question um, about the God having separate plans or separate programs for separate peoples, for one for the church, one for the Gentiles, another for the Jews. So who is raptured when Christ returns? We acknowledge there will be a rapture at Christ's returns. It will be the whole church, both those who have died and those who remain alive at his coming. Verse 14 roots our certainty that this will happen in the gospel. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
Every time the Apostle Paul speaks of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the chief, the chief things that it brings about is the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile, the inclusion of Gentiles into the congregation of God. So this was his purpose in dying on the cross and rising again to eternal life, that we might follow him in his death, united to him in his death and in his resurrection. All of his people, for whom did Christ die? He died for the congregation. We say he died for the church. And that is a a translation of a New Testament word, ecclesia, But the word ecclesia shows up many times in the Old Testament, and it's usually translated congregation or assembly, the congregation of Israel. So the same term is used in the New Testament, and it is that body, God's people, that the Gentiles are called into. And so Christ, when he died, he died for that whole elect body down through the ages so we're back on familiar territory there's only one savior there's only one plan of salvation for God's people not two not a separate program for the nation of Israel and I hope we're still on familiar territory when we emphasize that there is only one people of God Paul goes to great lengths to demonstrate the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been abolished by the cross. Jesus reconciled the two, making them one. Think of the book of Ephesians, particularly in chapter 2. Jesus reconciled the two, making them one. There is no longer Jew and Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. That point is made in Galatians, it's made in Colossians, that all of those barriers have been brought down. All are one in Christ. In Romans 11, where it speaks of natural branches being the Jews and the ingrafted branches being the Gentiles, there's only one bush, there's only one tree, and it is the one people of God. So, what we come to when we come to 1 Thessalonians 4, is a description of the Lord coming back for his own. And we do join with, even with our dispensational brothers and sisters, in that longing for his return. One of the objections that they have to um, the view that this is talking about Christ's return They recognize from places like 2 Thessalonians 2 and also from some of their, I would, we don't have time to go into it, but some of their misinterpretations of other passages that there are a number of things which must take place before the Lord returns. And they're bothered by the fact that, well, that means it will be delayed. We have to go through all of that before the Lord comes back. And so can we really say the The return of the Lord is imminent if we've got this whole bunch of things that have to happen first before he returns. No man knows the day or the hour, the scripture says. And so, um, well, we may not know the day or the hour, but we know that when 
certain events start to happen, we're still going to have to wait until he returns. The scripture really does not tell us how long the end will be, how long you know, all the descriptions that are made, 2 Thessalonians 2, um, Revelation 13 and following about the beast and all of those uh, descriptions of how the end, the very end uh, time before the Lord's return will be terrible times. It does make very clear, though, that the saints will go through it. A, an objection, uh, another objection they make is that um, for that period that they recognize as the tribulation from uh, described in Revelation 6 through 19, the church is never mentioned. There's no mention of the church, so they must be gone. They must have been raptured. Um, I think most of us, especially some of you who had logic class in school, um, will recognize that as an argument from silence. Um, no, no mention of the word church, therefore the church was not there. Um, the word church does not appear in the book of Hebrews. doesn't appear in the book of 1 John. Does that mean there were no, no church there either? I mean, obviously, that's, uh, just the absence of the word uh, doesn't tell you anything. As a matter of fact, the church, believers, Christians, are referred to a number of times in that section of the book of Revelation. They are referred to as the saints. Same term that is used very often, and especially in the Pauline epistles, speaks of the church as the saints. And so Revelation 5, 8 speaks of the prayers of the saints, uh, again in 8.3 and 8.4, all the prayers of the saints. But uh, Revelation 13.7 pretty much settles the issue of whether the saints will suffer during the time leading up to the second coming of Christ. Also, it was allowed, 13.7, it was allowed, that is the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And so if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And similar language is used again and again. Uh, One of the things that the beast and Babylon will suffer for is that they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and given them blood to drink. So we are not told that we will escape tribulation. Uh, When the first first Thessalonians 5 speaks of us not being appointed to suffer wrath, it is, of course, the final judicial wrath of God that sends the unbelieving to eternal punishment. That is the wrath that is spoken of there. That is what we are spared. Uh, But we will not be spared suffering. And the scripture, as a matter of fact, um, is written to us. Indeed, the whole book of Revelation is almost wholly devoted to preparing the church to suffer and to suffer faithfully. That... They might conquer not by taking over the culture, but might conquer by not losing their faith, Um, their faith in the one 
who will, at his return, completely overthrow the kingdoms of this earth and will establish, um, not establish, a better term is consummate or reveal his kingdom, which already has been established. It cannot be seen by the world. We are citizens of it, and it will be revealed. We are told again and again that conquering is a matter of remaining faithful to the end. And the Lord will come. As I began to say a minute ago, we don't know really how long those, uh, it doesn't seem that there will be an interminable time. Once, if things uh, really get bad as they are, uh, as all of the, uh, the First Thessalonians, rather Second Second Thessalonians, speaks of the uh, spirit of rebellion and of lawlessness being underway, even of course in his day, in Paul's day, and that is going to remain. And there is a time when it will just become immeasurably worse. But it, the picture really seems to be in Second Thessalonians that the Lord will come unexpected, suddenly. And the lawless one, will be, uh, he will be killed with the breath of his mouth, bringing to nothing, bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So we share with believers everywhere that desire for the Lord to come and that he would fulfill those very last words of the book of Revelation. Yes, Lord, come quickly. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we would thank you for this promise, and we do encourage one another with these words. The Lord, the sovereign Lord over history, who governs over all things, Jesus Christ, who rules over all things for the church, um, will come. He will surely come. And Lord, we do pray, come, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.